I'll ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and certainly our prayer would be that the Lord would indeed speak to us today through His Word. Colossians chapter 1, we will begin with verse 24, and we will continue up to chapter 2, verse 23. And that final section of that song, which is also a prayer, Speak, O Lord, till your church is built, captures in many ways the message of this passage and captures our burden, our heart, here at this church. I think you're all familiar with our vision statement, Crestic Baptist Church, a base camp for believers, a lighthouse for the lost. And we, the elders and deacons, have developed a mission statement to kind of flesh that out a bit more. And here's the mission statement. We exist to worship God with our whole lives, as a loving community under the gospel. We seek to produce disciples in Guelph and around the world. And this mission statement captures our understanding of our church's God-given mission that Paul describes in this passage. And in this passage, Paul doesn't just give us the mission of the church, he also gives us the strategy for fulfilling that mission, as well as the rationale behind the strategy. So let's read the passage. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24, all the way to chapter 2, verse 23. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive in, by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, 
and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are but a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. This have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you can see in verse 28, Paul's God-given mission. Verse 20, chapter 1, verse 28, his mission was to present everyone mature in Christ. Or in the NIV, it says to present everyone fully mature in Christ. And it's not that you hang on till you're 98 and you die. See, maturity isn't a matter of age or longevity. Maturity is an issue of the heart. Following Douglas Moo, we can say that it is the quality of being so wholehearted in one's devotion to the Lord that one can be said to be blameless in conduct. That's what maturity is. It is being wholehearted. Because the reality of it is our hearts are divided. Our loyalties are divided. And maturity comes as our hearts are knit together to, be whole, to love the Lord our God with all our hearts. And our mission as a church then is to participate in Christ's goal in reconciling us to God. It's the goal that Paul expresses in verse 22 in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, or free from accusation. It is to be so wholehearted that everything about us screams, let God be glorified. 
And I think you can imagine and, and you realize that this mission demands continuous striving because it, our hearts will never be fully devoted to Christ until He returns. But at the same time, we also know that our striving is meaningful because our hearts will be made whole when Christ returns. In fact, the reason why we can grow at this time is that Christ is the one who is at work in us, uniting our hearts. And that transformation is guaranteed by Christ's indwelling presence by His Spirit. That's why in verse 27, notice what Paul says, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is the presence of Christ that guarantees that our hearts will be made whole when He returns. Now, mystery here does not mean uh, Hardy Boys or Perry Mason or whatever mystery you like to read. Mystery here refers to the truth about God and His saving purposes that could only be known as it is revealed by God. Let me say that again. The mystery refers to the truth about God and His saving purposes that could only be known as it is revealed by God. And that mystery, by the nature of the case, centers around Christ and His redemptive work. As Ephesians 3 would put it, Christ is making Himself at home in our lives by His Spirit, changing us from within so that we would increasingly look like Him. Now, the fact that Christ is at work in us doesn't mean that, we, that it happens automatically. We recognize that God uses means. That's why, again, chapter Colossians 1.28, Paul begins that verse by saying, Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. We need to be pointed to Christ at all times through His Word. That's the means that God uses. And that's why we go through books of the Bible. But we don't just read books of the Bible or I don't just preach through books of the Bible for information. The goal is to point you to Christ and His saving work through every book of the Bible. Because as we see Christ through His Word, we are admonished, or in the ESV, we are warned in the sense that the Spirit exposes our sin and sinfulness. And as the Spirit exposes our sin and sinfulness through His Word, our attitudes are corrected. But thankfully, it doesn't stop there. The Spirit also drives us back to the cross of Christ in repentance and faith. And as we see Christ through His Word, His Spirit transforms our desires. And He teaches us to think Christ's thoughts after Him. And that's how we learn wisdom. That's how we learn to grow. Wisdom being the art of skillfully living for God. That's Paul's mission, to present everyone fully mature in Christ by proclaiming Christ. And Paul is so devoted to his God-given mission and strategy in verse 29 
to chapter 2, verse 1, he says he gives all his energy and resources. Notice what he says. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. It's, it's, it's hard labor. And he uses a phrase in verse 24, chapter 1, verse 24, that sounds strange. He says, he rejoices, I rejoice in the midst of my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body. What do you mean, what is lacking in Christ's affliction? Well, it is a very difficult statement to interpret, uh, and a lot of crazy ideas have come out. But I think Thomas Schreiner explains it well, and he says it better than I can. So I'm, I'm going to read his explanation. When Paul speaks of what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he is not suggesting that Christ's death was insufficient inherently. Paul, through his sufferings, however, extends the message of Christ's all-sufficient death to the Gentiles. For such a message was concealed from the Gentiles during the life of Jesus of Nazareth. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions is that the benefit of these afflictions had not yet been proclaimed to the Gentiles. Don't miss that phrase. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions is that the benefit of these afflictions had not yet been proclaimed to the Gentiles. And like Christ, Paul heralds a message advanced in and through his suffering. And that's why Paul rejoices in his sufferings, because it is his privilege to advance the gospel. And we need to recognize that suffering and sacrifice are often necessary in order to proclaim Christ faithfully. At my previous church at Living Hope, for us it meant giving up the comfort and safety of being an ethnic church. And by God's grace, we worked to become a multi-ethnic church so that we may proclaim Christ faithfully to the community around us. And I have to say, it was painful. But it was also very beneficial because in enduring the pain, we not only were able to proclaim the gospel to the community around us, it also made us a healthier church. And it begs the question for us as a congregation, what sacrifices is God calling us to make individually and as a church in order to proclaim Christ to the city of Guelph? I don't know. But as the days come, we need to be ready to sacrifice. As the days come, faithfulness to Christ will come at a price. And we need to be, we need to commit ourselves to proclaiming the gospel no matter what the cost may be. Now, thankfully, it's not something we do on our own. We don't fulfill the mission and the strategy on our own. Look at chapter 1, verse 29. Christ gives us the strength to serve regardless of the cost. Look at what Paul says. For this I toil, struggling with all whose energy? His energy that He powerfully works within me. 
The reason why we can proclaim the gospel faithfully despite suffering is that Christ is at work in us by His Spirit to sustain sacrificial service to proclaim Christ so that everyone will be fully mature in Him. In fact, if you read it in light of Ephesians chapter 1, we recognize that the power with which Christ works is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's why we can make the sacrifice. That's why we can continue to serve in the face of hardship. It's not because we're strong, but because the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is at work in us. And that's why growth in the church is a comprehensive mission. No believer can be left immature. No believer left behind. We all need to be growing in likeness to Jesus. Notice Paul's goal, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is in Christ. And that struggle is for all those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. In other words, it's everyone in the church in fact, verse 28, warning everyone and teaching everyone. In other words, growth is a communal effort. It's everybody who is a believer needing to grow and mature so that the elders cannot say, well, you know, 95% is okay. The 5% who doesn't grow, well, it's okay. No, no. The standard is 100% of all believers growing in maturity. And on the other hand, it speaks to the importance of community. In fact, verse 2, of their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. You notice that connection between being knit together in love so that we may understand the truth. We shrivel up when we fly solo. And I like the way R. Kent Hughes explains this. When we are loved by other believers, we experience Christ through them. And thus our knowledge of Christ is enhanced. The complementary side of this is that when we allow the Holy Spirit to live the life of Christ through us, and we experience this when we do acts of love towards members of the body of Christ, then we too have our knowledge of Him enhanced. And don't miss this. No intellectual process will lead to a full grasp of the mystery of Christ unless it is accompanied by a love for Him and for Christians that knits us, the church, together in love. See, that's the part I don't like. Because Christians are annoying, aren't they? Really. <laughs> I know I'm annoying. But guess what? If we truly know the gospel and we truly understand the truth of God's word, it must lead to love for our brothers. Because John says in 1 John, you cannot say you love God if you do not love your brother. Archant Hughes goes on, we cannot pursue knowledge of God 
in willful and loving isolation, rejecting fellowship with others. Historically, some have tried and have suffered incomplete or even distorted understanding. Complete understanding of the mystery comes in loving community. And that's why Paul, in chapter 1, commends the Colossians for their love for one another. He's pointing out the gospel's already bearing fruit in their lives, and it's demonstrated in verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5, in their orderly and firm faith in Jesus Christ. He's telling them, reminding them, you've started well. Keep going. He wants them to understand the gospel more fully so that they would keep growing by holding fast to Christ. And to that end, he gives this theme statement in verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, to receive Christ Jesus the Lord refers to this notion of having been taught about Jesus. You know the truth about Christ, but it's not simply intellectual knowledge. It means that they've received the teaching about Jesus and they have submitted to his rule and authority. Because we understand biblical faith involves three aspects. We know the truth, we agree with the truth, and we entrust ourselves to the truth. We commit ourselves. We cling to Christ in light of all He is and what He has done. And through that kind of faith, we are united with Christ. That's why Paul tells us, notice what it says, walk in Him. We are united with Christ. And our lives are transformed by the truth about Jesus as we live out of relationship with Him. And if we understand this in light of chapter 1, verse 10, this is how we please the Lord. We walk with Him. And when Paul uses the language of being rooted, built up, established in the faith, Paul is actually taking up the temple imagery in verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19 to 23. Christ is... Uh, for in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell bodily. If you remember that, verse, verse 19, that speaks to Christ as the temple of God, the true temple. And here's the wonderful thing. We who are His body are also the temple of God. And when Paul says that we are to be rooted, built up, and established in the faith, He's saying, you are the temple of God. Stay in Christ. Enjoy your union with Christ. And it's emphasizing, he means to emphasize that it is God who is at work in us to enable us to grow and persevere. You notice, rooted is passive, built up is passive, established is passive. We don't root ourselves, we don't build ourselves, we don't establish ourselves. It is God who roots us, who builds us, who establishes us so that we may grow and persevere. Now, it doesn't mean, oh, good, thank goodness. I can let go and let God. Stop. (laughs) 
Let's understand that God's faithfulness motivates us and encourages us to cling to Christ and make every effort to grow. And that's why Paul moves on, abounding in thanksgiving. That's the active side. We recognize the goodness of God in rooting us in the faith, in uniting us with Christ. And so we delight in Him. So what does giving thanks do? Well, thanksgiving leads us to acknowledge our need for God. We give thanks because Christ has given us something that we need, that we couldn't supply on our, on our own. And as we recognize that God has been gracious to us, then we recognize His authority over our lives. So that the gospel properly understood teaches us to be grateful to God and that gratitude guards our hearts from being distracted from Christ. And then, the rest of the passage, Paul explains why we need to hold fast to Christ instead of allowing ourselves to be distracted by false teachings. First of all, in verse 9 and 10, Paul is saying that only the person of Jesus Christ can satisfy our deepest longings. Look at verse 9. For in Christ, for in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. See, Jesus is fully God, and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found in Him. To have Him is to have everything. And Paul makes this crystal clear because it seems that the Colossian believers were being seduced or enticed by teachers who were proclaiming a system of belief that promised some kind of fullness, some kind of spiritual satisfaction and fulfillment. And they might have been taught a mix of Jewish practices and um, appeasing of spiritual forces so that they can gain access to God and enter into a deeper spiritual experience. And the burden of Paul's argument is that you don't need those things. They are empty lies because they pull you away from Christ. If in Christ all, he, all, our, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid, then what, are you, what else do you need? If in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, then what else do you need? In fact, he goes on in verse um, 16 to verse 18 to point out that the Old Testament laws governing purity, sacrifice, festival, and Sabbath were meant to point to Jesus. Look at verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now that He has come, the shadows are obsolete. We already have the substance. We have free access to God through Jesus Christ. And that's why he says in verse 18, therefore, let no one disqualify you. There is no better access than Jesus. Your ascetic, your, your, your ascetic practices, your, um, your self-denial, that's not going to make you more accepted by God. If anything... 
To follow those teachings is to be puffed up and separated from Christ who enables us to grow. That's what he's saying in verse 19. If you start following these teachers who boast about their visions and lead you into worshiping angels, then you will not be holding fast to Christ who is the head who causes us to grow. Now, let's go back to verse 8. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, please note, the Bible isn't against philosophy. Philosophy in this context is probably better understood or interpreted as religion rather than philosophy. The Bible is not against philosophy. In fact, all wisdom and no- if all wisdom and knowledge are to be found in Jesus Christ, then Christians ought to be the best philosophers and thinkers. Paul's warning against philosophy according to human tradition, though, exposes that religion to be idolatrous worship. Anything that detracts from Jesus Christ, however good it may sound, is idolatrous worship. And this is where the text connects with us most directly. During that time, the Colossian believers believed, or the Colossians believed that spirits were behind the workings of the universe. Now, we're more materialists than than superstitious. That's our particular superstition. And you and I may be theologically scrupulous, but the reality of it is we're all still prone to idolatry. And here's the warning that Paul Tripp sounds that I think we need to heed. This is our special, specific idolatry. Many of us seem obsessed with glory, but it's not the glory of God. No, we're filled with a sense of the glory of our theological knowledge, our biblical literacy, our political conservatism, our social action, the success of our ministries, the number of our followers, who we hang with, the prominence of our tribe, and the power of our ability to communicate. And we're thankful that we are not like other people who don't have what we have. We are righteous. We are experts. And we know what's best. This kind of self-glory will always blind your eyes to the humility, gratitude, and love-producing glory of God. Brothers and sisters, I think this is our particular temptation, isn't it? We know better. But the mystery of the gospel pierces the bubble of our self-important arrogance. Because by the very nature of the case, that it is a mystery that we only know because it is revealed by God just reduces our pride to nothing. Because what I have, I have received. And I trust in Christ only because God has rescued me from my helpless damnation. In fact, Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 that even our faith has been enabled by the Spirit's work opening our eyes to see the glory of Christ so that I have no reason whatsoever to boast. 
Everything I have is received. And that's why Paul moves on to give the second reason we need to stay focused on Christ. From verse 11 to verse 13, he moves on. Not only does Jesus alone satisfy, Jesus alone can save. In verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, Paul is talking about the wonder of union with Christ that baptism is meant to portray. Now let me make this clear. Baptism does not replace circumcision. Baptism, rather, portrays the circumcision of our hearts. That wonderful transformation that God brought about in us as we trusted in Jesus Christ. So let's take a step back. In the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of being in covenant relationship with God. And it symbolized purification and belonging to God. Through faith in Christ, we have been, as Paul says in verse 11, we have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision of Christ is not the physical circumcision that happened when he was eight, years, eight days old. The circumcision of Christ is his death on the cross. I think that much becomes clear in the context. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him. If we are buried with him, that means that what is in reference here is the death of Christ. He was cut off in the language of Isaiah. That's the circumcision of Christ. His death. And by his death, Christ has purchased us for himself and cleansed us of our sins by his death. And that's what Paul means by the circumcision made without hands. If circumcision is a symbol of purification, then what God has purified is not our physical body. God has purified our hearts, as Romans 2, 28 and 29 would say. And what Paul is trying to say is that we are united with him through faith. So that in Christ's death, we died with him. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 13. Or verse 12 in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. See, that's the wonder of what it means to be a believer. In the death of Christ, we died with him. In his resurrection, we rise again into the life of the new creation. And in rising into that new creation, we are brought into the new covenant. And we've received the new covenant promise of new hearts indwelt by the Spirit of God. And united with Christ, we, our sins are forgiven. That's part of the promise of the new covenant. And Paul uses in verse 14 the image of our debt being canceled, being wiped away. And please understand, it's not because God says, oh yeah, I know you sinned, but let's 
let's just hide it under the rug of the universe. No, that would be wrong. That would be unjust. And God would be unjust to do that. Notice that our debt is canceled by the cross. That's why it says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. On the cross, Jesus bore the penalty for our sin. He suffered the wrath that we deserve. And that's why Paul says, we need to fix our eyes on Christ, on him who loved us and gave himself for us. Because only his work can save. And by his death and resurrection, in verse 15, he says, he has not just procured salvation for us. Christ has defeated Satan and his minions. Notice, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In some translations, it's in it, either in Christ or on the cross, and it comes to the same thing. The point that Paul wants to emphasize is that during those days, people thought evil spirits controlled their lives and needed to be appeased. That's what um, the elemental spirits of the world seems to mean. Christ is saying, guys, you don't need to be afraid of those spirits. You don't need to appease those spirits. Christ has triumphed over them. Now in our day, we have a different superstition. We think DNA controls us and defines us. That I'm born this way, therefore, you got to accept me the way I am. Either way, the good news is that Jesus saves us fully and completely by his cross. In a sense, we are defined by our DNA. But in another sense, we are not defined by our DNA because we are made new creatures in Jesus Christ. And so we have nothing to fear. The glory of the cross is that it is completely sufficient for our salvation. We need nothing and no one else but Jesus Christ. And the whole language here in chapter 2, verse 16 to 23, talks about access to God. That's why they were scrupulous about observing purity laws, about food laws, about um, Sabbaths. They wanted to be able to approach God. And Paul is saying, guys, you don't need those things because Christ has come. We are united with Christ who fully pleased the Father. And therefore, we have free access to God. And that's the amazing thing for you and me today. There is nothing that stands between us and our worship of God. Even if you're persecuted, even if you're in hiding, even if you're tone deaf, nothing keeps you from worshiping God and God being pleased with your worship. Because it is offered in Jesus Christ. God is pleased because it is the worship of his child in Christ. And so those visions 
and ascetic practices are not going to make you more accepted. And then in verse 19 to 23, Paul says, neither will those practices transform you. Notice what he says, verse, beginning verse, verse 19. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Notice that language, human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. They look good, don't they? They look holy, they look spiritual. Notice what he says at the end. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, the sad part is they only distract us from clinging to Christ. The only way to grow is to cling to Christ who grows us as we walk in Him. Rules don't make you holy, right? They only make you look holy. But they can't stop our deep self-indulgence. I know someone who was very emphatic. He did not have a TV. He was very proud of that fact. What he didn't tell us was that he had a laptop. <laughs> and unfortunately, that laptop was the means by which he accessed pornography. So sure, no TV. I have another way to access pornography. See, rules don't change hearts. Only Jesus does. And here's the great news. United with Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection, He has already given us new hearts indwelt by His Spirit. I've said that over and over. Do you get it? <laughs> it is He who is transforming us. So we need nothing else. And so we must cling to Christ whose indwelling presence is our hope of glory. And it's not a vain wish. It is a certain, definite assurance that we will be glorified. Paul's point is that from beginning to end, all we need, we find in Christ alone. So accept no substitutes and accept no additives. Anything that diminishes or distracts us from the primacy, centrality, and sufficiency of Christ crucified and risen again is ultimately an empty deceit. Having received the truth about Christ, let's get deeper in Christ. Growing in our grasp of the truth so that we cling to Christ more and more. And as we cling to Christ, let us proclaim him with all his energy that he powerfully works in us. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have graced us with Christ. Indeed, it is an astounding thing to know that the sovereign Lord of the universe has condescended to give himself to us. Christ gave himself for us 
on the cross. And he gives himself to us in relationship. Father, what a gift it is to be united with Christ, to be bound to him, never to be cast off, to be united with him through faith so that all that is is his is ours. Oh Lord, thank you for the privilege of belonging to you. And I pray that as your people, you would help us, as Paul prayed, to, to understand, to, have, to, re to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Forgive us, Father, for so many times we get distracted, we lose the point. And in all of our theological knowledge, we lose sight of Christ. I pray, Father, that our understanding of your word would always lead us to recognize the glory, the majesty, the beauty of Christ. That in all our learning, we would gain the wisdom of seeing Christ. So that in seeing Christ, our hearts would delight in Christ more and more. And in delighting in Christ, delight in the people whom he loves. So that we, your people, might truly be a lighthouse from which the gospel shines forth. As people see our love for one another. And in our love for one another, see the one whose love made us love one another. Oh Lord, it is something that we cannot accomplish of our own, on our own. But we thank you for the assurance that this text provides us that you are at work in us so that we would be rooted in Christ and ultimately display the glory of Christ. Not uh, as, as we reflect his beauty, his majesty, his goodness. Oh Lord, we pray that as we know these glorious realities, you would help us as a church to grow into these things. And we thank you that this is your purpose in bringing us together. So help us, Father, to be truly a church that shines the light of Christ in the city of Guelph and beyond. This is pray in Christ's name. Amen.